Hello and welcome to the Hoopla Impro podcast, the podcast all about the who, what and where of improv. My name's Leo Maxwell and each week I'll be interviewing great improvisers to pick their brains for top tips, favourite exercises and even the odd bit of juicy improv goss along the way. My guest today is Katie Shute. Katie is one of the UK's original long-form improvisers and has taught improv across the world. She's also co-artistic director for The Maydays, a group she helped found in 2004 and is half of the legendary sci-fi improv duo Project 2. Many of you will also know her as the author of The Improviser's Way, a definitive how-to for long-form improv. In this episode, Katie tells us about her love of super agreements, why genre is all about the love and not the dollar sign, as well as great insights on the pitfalls of character stereotypes and what improv can learn from the Cohen brothers. Enjoy. Katie Shute, welcome to the Hoopla Impro podcast. Hello, how are you? I'm very well, how are you doing? Yeah, grand, thanks. Um, how was the trip to South Africa? It was good. I mean, I don't want to talk about what's going on in the world, but let's just say I've been two days ahead of it for... Um, <laughs> Fantastic. My last tour. Well, for whenever this gets released, I'm sure people will forget completely what happened between March and May of 2020. Right? Yes. <laughs> no one's going to be thinking about that at all. So let's kick off with some improv stuff. You have been teaching for quite a long time now and performing for a very long time. I want to pick your brains on what your top three tips would be if someone were to come up to you in um, a coffee shop or somewhere like that, somewhere where mm-hmm. Katie Shute goes out in the daytime and someone <laughs> comes up to you and says, you look like an improviser. What are your top three tips for me to be a great improviser? Well, they would definitely recognize me because I'd probably be wearing some kind of improv t-shirt. So yeah. well done them for being observant. They're obviously a good improviser already if they're picking up on uh, clues. Yeah. Do you know what? The answer is different according to how experienced someone is, I guess. You know, if they're if it's someone brand new to improv, you'd be like, oh, like pay a lot of attention. Maybe just say the next most obvious thing and uh, trying to agree with whatever reality is happening in the scene. Like that would be my, you know, and commit to your ideas, like that kind of stuff. But if it was someone who'd been improvising for a long time, then it might be a different kind of strategy that's a bit more complicated. Of like, find out what the other improvisers what what makes them have fun like how can you ignite the fire of the other people on stage and keep them present and interested so they're not just doing a sort of autopilot of how amazing they are yeah yeah and you know similarly for yourself like what if you've been doing it for a long time what brings you absolute joy can you kind of put yourself in trouble or find new ways of creating characters or situations or you know go into a world that you're really excited by is that something that you've um, had to deal with being in groups like the Maydays that have been going for so long? Do you get into a groove and you kind of get yourself a bit too comfortable and you have to pull yourselves out of it? Yeah, I think so. I think it's the same with any group where like basic things like if you're doing long form editing and stuff like that, there'll be people who are more front footed, people who tend to respond a bit more slowly. And that's not a bad thing. Like, yeah. They're maybe just looking for subtext or responding uh, with an emotion or, or a character choice that isn't as immediate but then you don't want the show to always have the same flavor or you don't want everyone to be doing just their thing. Yeah. It's nice on one level because everyone's an expert and at something and has their own cool superpower, you know. But uh, yeah, I think changing it up is good. Amazingly, it hasn't got boring in the Maydays, I think. 
maybe just because there's so many of us in each show it's like a slightly different combination so you're like going oh what's the vibe of you know this five person show there's quite a lot of combos when there's 13 of you yeah and is that something that you still do in rehearsal because obviously rehearsals for groups that have been together that long probably can become a little maybe a bit samey but do you make a conscious effort Mm. yeah I think I mean what I've done this year so I'm artistic director at the moment so I get to decide what we've been doing rehearsals so this year um I've I've had three Maydays direct brand new shows. So we have a lot of the skills for particular shows or whatever, but we've been working on the bat with Heather, which is the sort of Harold in the dark kind of format from um, Joe Bill. And then there's um, Chris is doing close encounters, which is like another format. So it's kind of focusing on one thing and then developing the skills in that area. So even if you feel like oh, I'm a confident improviser, I know what I'm doing. Just you know, there's always new stuff to learn, and to focus as a group on something different is cool and exciting. I think, yeah. Um, and do you think it's like really important to have different defined roles within a group like that? So when you have an artistic director, because um, I imagine when you get consensus between people, that must be really refreshing to be able to go, okay, that person's in control of that thing. Yeah, we're all pretty outspoken as well, and we've all been a- around for a while, so there's a lot of uh, it. It really helps us to define who's doing what on a particular day. Like we just literally, when we have a gig, we have a gig captain. So it's like, right, you're the person that talks to the lighting person. You make sure we have any props or whatever we need at the venue. You, you know, you do all the grunt work mm. so that everyone else can be more of in a host and in a show headspace. Whereas everyone else, everyone will try and take care of that if we didn't allocate it to one person and then no one would really be focused on their show. So things like that are useful as well, I think. Yeah, and within the company, people have their different roles and they're like voted in and they move around. So it's not always one person that's stuck with a particular thing. Yeah, we've just had that in uh, my group, The Descendants. We we had a, a retreat and people put their names up mm-hmm. for um, artistic director and we went for two artistic directors and I'm or because I'm one of them I'm a co-artistic director and I'm already worrying about re-election so the politics of it have spiraled <laughs> massively already I don't know if we're gonna have like smear campaigns and oh god I, I don't even want to think about that we'd sort of have that we have two as well at the moment weirdly we've got three because Liz just got a bit overwhelmed so Rhiannon mm. stepped up and then we're like I guess we're sort of three right now even though it should be two but yeah it's more like no one else will stand because, you know, it's a bunch of work. <laughs> yeah, it is a bunch of work. It's a bunch of work that's not that fun. Um, yeah. And yeah, I'm definitely guilty of maybe when she hears this, probably she'll laugh. Sarah McKinless will laugh at this. I put a lot of kind of that stuff on her and I'm more of like the ideas guy. Um, yeah. So I think I'm going to be a one term co-artistic director. I feel like, yeah, I'm going to be the Jimmy Carter of The Descendants. That's good. Yeah, there's a nice political reference for anyone who cares, who's listening to this podcast, who likes politics. (laughs) So, yeah, because you've been teaching so long, I want to also know what your favourite exercises are. What are your favourite exercises or exercise singular for uh, listening? Ah, I love this one. I feel really bad that I forgot where it came from, but it was quite recently that I learned it, so bad me. But anyway, it's uh, you just one of you makes the beginning sound of a word. And then the other person just finishes it into a real word, which is weird, weird to do over Zoom because there's like mm. a delay. But it would be if I, so I'm not planning what word I'm going to say. Yeah. I'm just making a sound with a yes. bit of a consonant and a vowel. Yes. And then 
do you want to have a go? Let's have a go. A Let's if have it doesn't turn into a word, that's not a bad thing. It's just okay. like a warm up, right? Yeah, and if yeah. it does, like amazing. Yeah. So it'd be like Z Z Q L is the name of a Greek god, and yeah. he is very powerful and wise. Um, oh, it's been a while. Yeah, yeah I know, right? Yeah, oh, tough. I actually think I remember you teaching that in the performance oh, course that you taught me in 2016. That's bringing back all sorts wow. of memories. I know, way back when. Nice. That's yeah. good fun. That one, I think, also because. It's just like it ends up being a commitment exercise on the side as well because you know what I mean? Like you want to say the whole word from the beginning and you're not really allowed. So you just have to immediately join in with a thing, which means that when you get on stage, you're immediately joining in rather than like auditioning an idea or trying to make it make sense straight away. So I like that one. Yeah, that's a great one. I really like that one. Um, Okay, next one is um, Yes And. What like ones do? Because I remember we'll get onto your book in a minute. Because I've read it. I mean, disclaimer: it was lent to me by my flatmate Jess Williamson. So unfortunately, I haven't <laughs> contributed good. to your book sale. But <laughs> I want to know that there is something else. I'm going to get into it that is juicy and I really love. But there's something I th- right. I remember reading in the yes and part about a super agreement. Oh yeah. So a lot of the American improvisers that I love very much, particularly Baby Wants Candy, they they play super agreements sometimes, not all the time. But it's rather than just agreeing with something, you're like agreeing loads and really positively and adding information. So it's just it's just lovely. My my favorite example of this was I got to play in this um, podcast, which is basically improvised Star Trek, which they do in Chicago, oh. and it's really fun. There's like five years of podcasts if anyone wants to join in. But um, I went in and they've got all these established characters that they've had for years. So I had notes of like everyone's name and stuff. Cause it was like, I have, you know, you have to know that. Um, so I went in and I went in really low status as like a cleaner on C deck or something. And within about 10 minutes, oh, and because I'd learned who they all were and what their roles were, they suddenly then the beginning of their episode, their joke was like that everyone had changed jobs. And I was like, oh God, <laughs> this is going to kill me. Um, but rather than uh, them kind of messing with me about it, that I just got promoted to captain immediately and they sort of put me in charge, you know, and that's just such a lovely super agreement thing. Yeah. You don't have to do, but it, it made me have a really lovely time. Um, and sometimes it's, I think because a lot of us are British as well, we find it really funny when some something's like shat on or dismissed is funny. Yes. So it's just like a different mode that sometimes can be really delightful. I also like it when shit happens to people. I think that's really funny. But we almost do it too much. So I quite like super agreement being like this lovely default and then our, our like press conferencing or giving someone a bad time is like almost more of a surprise or a character development or you know, something else. So, is that something you see in like the, um, the students you're teaching at the moment? We just inherited it from all the sitcoms that we, yeah. you know, the classic sitcoms from this country are normally like, yeah, put downs or yeah, dismissal. I think that's just a, that's just a cultural comedy background, which works really particularly well in script, but can be quite destructive in improv, particularly when people are new, because it can just be denial, right? Yeah. So you're denying something in a script, you're not denying the reality most of the time. You're just, you know, putting someone down, but you've written the comeback. They don't have to go back to the drawing board and be like, oh, how do we recover from this moment? You do sometimes in improv. 
So super agreement is a lovely way to build and then do what you want. And sounds to me like a really good way to help newer improvisers cope with nerves. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, because you feel really uh, embraced and looked after and you feel like all your ideas are special and you're a genius and an artist and all that good stuff, yeah. One thing I want to come to next, and anyone who um, has watched you on stage and knows your work is going to know about genre plays a big part in what <laughs> you do and Project 2 specifically. What is it about that sort of genre of sci-fi that excites you so much about doing it on stage and especially within improv? That's cool. Um, I just really like science fiction. So <laughs> for me, I... You know, improv's so infinite, right? You come on stage and there's nothing determined, probably. You might ask the audience for something. And when you get a suggestion or you have a genre, it starts narrowing down the possibility. And infinite ideas is like someone going, hey, write a joke. is a lot harder than someone going, hey, write a joke about a lion. And you're like, okay, I've got some ideas. <laughs> you know yeah. I mean? I've got some puns. You're like, um, but if it's just like, be funny now or think of something, that's just too big. So I think playing in a genre, you've already got a whole uh, film history, comic book history, whatever, wherever it comes from, to draw characters from and ideas from. So there's a background part of my brain when we're doing science fiction, which is, yeah, borrowing a bunch of stuff from different films and stories I've read and all that kind of stuff. And it's less work than writing something truly original, but because there's more than one of you making it writing it at the same time you, you come up with the original material and you can't remember everything right so if you tried to improvise solaris accurately yeah you couldn't anyway like that wouldn't happen so it's nice it must be very nice um I, i'll say this also from a personal perspective i love narrative improv and i love genre um ostentatious i remember when i first saw that i was just like completely blown away that that was even possible but it must be very nice when you find someone or a couple of other people who are also really into that genre and you're like oh my gosh we could do this there's i'm, I'm gonna sort of accidentally slag off the maydays in this comment i don't mean to though okay right? but um there's a you know there's a point with chris where we like we our last show that we did in south africa was um this uh arctic base which was sort of caught in a weird time loop. That wasn't the suggestion. That's just what happened in the show. So we had loads of coexisting realities happening at different times. So we're playing multi-characters in multi-dimensional time. So I don't feel like I could initiate that with most people. Like I can initiate that with Chris and he'll be like, oh, that, that kind of sci-fi, you know, in his head and he'll just do it as well or vice versa. Like he'll initiate stuff as well, obviously. So, but maybe with Maydays, I'm, we do narrative, obviously, but we don't do necessarily really complicated sci-fi yeah. tropes like time travel. It'd be more like uh, adventure, like Tim Burton type stuff, where there's probably one protagonist and we're following this neat line. So, yeah, I, I think if you could find your people, it's not a huge effort to learn a genre. You're just like, you know it and you're excited by it and actually takes the pressure off your improv instead of you having to work harder, I think. Yeah, because it's almost lets you tell, like when you're saying about telling Solaris back to you again, it's like mm -hmm. almost impossible to do. But when you've got a genre that has so many things, it could be Western, it could be like war movies or gangster movies, you're just making up your own one. That's, yeah. and, and you can explore stuff that your favourite director's never even explored. Yeah, no, I love that. That's very cool. 
I think some what some people do not well is they pick a genre because they think it will sell rather than it's because it's something they're really excited about. Mm. So they'll like try and retrofit. Like there's a lot of Harry Potter shows in the world. I made a prediction that by 2021, all improv shows would be Harry Potter. Um, yeah, that <laughs> might be close. <laughs> but some of them are amazing and some of them are not. And I think that's partly about how genuine people are about their love for a thing, right? Mm. So if you're like love and are obsessed with Harry Potter and are a good improviser with a good team, then you're going to have an awesome show. And if you're like, hey, I know what might work, it's, it's less, you know, if it's commercial plan, it's less likely to work for you. Yeah, we definitely did that with my group. We, we 100%, we went, we went down the, because we're a narrative group, what's our genre? We racked our brains for ages. Um, I think at this point, Steve Rowe was still coaching us because we're um, a Hoopla House team. And he said, what about Roald Dahl? So we went, yes, that's got dollar signs written all over it. So we... Uh, will you disprove my theory? Because I saw your Roald Dahl show and I thought it was great. Okay, so thank you very you. much. I mean, we, we committed to it a lot, but I would say the thing we lacked, which you've just mentioned, is love for it i think we were all just we were committing to it but none of us really loved it as as much as we could have done so i think that's where it probably peters out so that's quite an interesting thing for anyone who wants to get into narrative or genre improv really love it yeah yeah for sure find find the thing that that you're excited about outside of improv i think that's pretty cool there's a thing i do when i teach a duo class which is i'll get the the, like two improvisers if they're going to be a team or they're already a team I'll get them to write a list of stuff they love about the other person's work or the other person's passions. So when me and Chris wrote our lists, uh, we both had science fiction on them. We were already doing a sci-fi show at that point. But the point being, if you have a shared interest, it's in that little Venn diagram yeah. where your lists cross over and you're like, well, let's just do about that then. You know what I mean? And it's just there already. There was there was a summer where I uh, directed, oh boy, the Quantum Leap show with the May Days. Oh yeah. And I love Quantum Leap, but everyone else kind of learned Quantum Leap. And it was the same thing where they were good at it, but it but it didn't like massively sell in the way Happily Never After does because everyone's got a genuine passion for like dark, uh, like messed up, weird stuff where it can be really strange. Everyone has their own attachment to Happily Never After. There's a sort of gothic interest from all the Maydays. That's good. Whereas <laughs> Oh Boy was like, let's learn about this TV show. You know, it wasn't quite the same. To delve a little deeper onto that narrative mm. side of things, and one thing which which was a very exciting thing I remember reading ages ago, and I was like, oh my gosh, at some point I have to talk to Katie about this, but I haven't had the chance. You also All love right. you also love the TV show Fargo. Oh yeah, that's amazing. Yes. I love it. Yeah, yeah I, that's brilliant. And do you know what? I think it's underappreciated. I don't think enough <sighs> people. I have said to people, I'm like, you have to watch this, and you know, whenever you say that to people, they always go, uh huh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll add it to the list. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But there was something very interesting that you wrote in your book about Fargo, and I think it's a parable that um, mm-hmm. is told, and it's the, the difference between, I think it's a Chekhov theory about if mm-hmm. there's a gun in the first scene, it needs to be fired in the second or third scene, whereas opposed to how Noah Hawley wrote it in Fargo, he wrote a parable that was completely throwaway. And I remember reading that you said that that's great for you to watch that something with no consequence to the plot could just be plopped in there and i just want to, if you could extrapolate on that yes so i i think there's just different modes of improvising right you can you can have a nice clean uh, simple narrative and that's great um 
and that's a good thing to strive for without planning ahead too much but then there's also real life so what do you want your show to feel like and I know that with the Coen brothers they want stuff to feel a little bit like a weird slice of life Mm -hmm. so they still have story like clean beautiful story but in order for us to believe in it a little bit more they've got to be things that don't fit that aren't important whereas like uh yeah if you're going with a more traditional style be like use everything Uh, everything's important um but the cool thing about that glove parable which is if i remember it rightly it's like um someone uh, notices as they get on a train that they've left a glove on the platform yeah and the train started pulling off and they're like oh i can't get my glove it's too late so they just throw the other glove out the window because at least then someone will have a pair of gloves that's which it. Is very cool but it's kind of so noah hawley was actually just trying to copy a sort of cohenism which is like why is this here because in real life there are things that don't mean anything or attach to anything. But but if you read like Reddit or any fan theories about that parable, everyone has their own idea. They're like, oh, it means this. It's an allegory for this. It tells us this about this character. And I think actually audiences are pretty smart. So if we do do something weird and unattached in improv, if you're really committing to it, then the audience is getting a load of information off it and probably so the other improvisers. So. Yeah, as long as it's rich and real, then I think that's not a bad thing to do. It's only if your whole show is full of that. Yeah, and the audience are like, (laughs) what am I watching? Yeah, then it's a montage, which is fine, but it's not narrative, you know. It sounds almost like it's um, trusting the audience to be intelligent and to Mm -hmm. kind of figure it out for themselves, just being like, we can put this in here and we don't have to spell it out for you what it means. Yeah, for sure. Um, well, I'm glad you've I'm glad you've done that because hopefully this will get more people onto Fargo and how fantastic it is. But it really does have a really nice uh, practical use in narrative improv that I think um, is nice for people to hear. It's just some of the cold opens are some of the best TV, aren't they? Like just before the credits even happen, some of the first and second series are just like yeah, first and that's second some of the best TV. What about what are your thoughts on the third? I like all of them. I but, think they all have different stuff to offer. I think they were pretty good. That wasn't my favourite one, though. No, I I happen to think that because I'm a big fan of like the gangster films and stuff like that, season two was just next level. Mm-hmm. Um, the way mm-hmm. they did that, the the family dynamics was fantastic. So this is slowly becoming the Fargo TV podcast, and um, <laughs> Steve Rowe will have my thumbs for that. So we're going to move off that. Something I remember you teaching as well back um, in 2016 was about characters. Um, mm-hmm. And something that's intrigued me is about um, the problems with stereotyping characters and how to move away from that in order to create like engaging characters in a show. Yeah, so we, we all have a shorthand for um, different people, right? Even though it's, it can creep into bad territory, right? Where you're making assumptions about people according to their background or their ethnicity or gender or whatever. Um, so there's one part that's like, how, don't be offensive on stage, but also you don't want to shut down all of your ideas because you're panicking about that, right? Um, but I think we find ourselves in stereotype. You can also just add other information so that there's a bit more depth to that character. Uh, here's, here's my example that I, is the same one that I do in every class because I'm just like, here's yeah. an example. But like if you have uh, like a football dude who's like, oh yeah, uh, you know, like that kind of thing. And you're like, oh yeah, I feel like I've seen this character everywhere before. You, you could swap out his specifics. So if he's not just going on about the Arsenal, 
you might be like, well, I love ballet, mate. Yeah, ballet, well, it's amazing. Look at those incredible, uh, talented physical performers. They spend, uh, you know, years learning at uh, the best conservatoires in the world. And that's not something you expect from like a football nerd, right? So you've already given that person a little bit more depth of character so that we can build more around them. They stop being such a stereotype. They're still a bit, right? But yeah, it's, it's just about making people 3D. The problem with stereotype is it's, it's not a, a person, it's a type. So if you can make them a person instead of a label, then it's going to be more truthful and interesting, I think. Yeah, I think audiences, I imagine, like seeing a stereotype occasionally or like you were saying if you add that when you're talking about adding something different to the character it just makes you Mm -hmm. it gives it such a little avenue to go down that you wouldn't have seen before and if you're just like oh that football fan might talk like that because I might have seen football fans talk like that but they're actually interested in ballet and there's (laughs) there's a whole stream for the show to go on yeah I I think also just it from a standpoint of creation if we improvise people we know I think that's a really nice way of getting away from Mm. stereotypes so even if you have a friend who does tick a bunch of boxes for being like a posh twat or something (laughs) if you're playing an actual friend of yours you know that you're not playing a stereotype they may seem quite stereotypical but there's going to be nuance with that character because you're thinking of that specific person and you're also less likely to be offensive because you're not picking something that's already gone through a bunch of other writers and other TV shows or whatever. You're not like, oh, I've seen that on telly, I'll do it. It's like, I've seen it from real life, so I'll do it. And I know it quite well, so I'm less likely to be a dick about it, you know? Yeah, I've definitely done that when I've had to play posh people. I've definitely just thought of people who I kind of remembered from home or from school and then just <laughs> melded them all together. I forget who it was, the comedian that you mentioned in your book who did that. Was it, some, was it one of the Ronnies, maybe? who wasn't good oh, at impressions, yeah. but like he would just take people and then no one would know who he was doing because he just kind of pushed them yeah, all Yeah, he together. did famous people. So he worked in rep as Ronnie Barker. Yeah, he yeah. worked in repertory. So he had to come up with like quite a lot of different characters in a short space of time because the plays all overlapped. So yeah, he, he was bad at doing impressions of famous people. Uh, people wouldn't be like, oh, that's Christopher Walken. I mean, I don't know if he was really around then, but you know what I mean? Yeah, I don't know. but um, They might know Christopher Walken. Yes. <laughs> Christopher Walken's one who comes up for every impressionist. I think um, yeah. occasionally me and Andrew Gentili, whenever we found ourselves in a <laughs> in a booth at, at Hoopla, or actually once we did it on the train on the way back on the Jubilee line, it was joyous for us, <laughs> but, uh, but uh, not for anybody else. Well, I have a question I've been asking everybody, and I've been getting some very different answers. All right. If there was a show put on in honour of you, and who's to say that won't happen? At, at, at some <laughs> that point that will mean I die right that will, <laughs> that will mean you may have passed on um yes yeah. but if you if you hadn't um and this but you were still alive and there was the show in honor of Katie shoots um who would you pick to be your top three acts who are who are on the bill oh my god are they individual are the acts so like Shows, shows, but I guess if you want to take one out and maybe make them do solo improv just for a laugh, um, <laughs> no, I, w- I, I will. I will caveat this by saying um, Nick Oren put himself in every single performance, so he gave a list of acts and then said, "But I want to be in all of them, and I will probably ruin them." But you know, it's your show; you can do what you like. That's difficult because when it's your favorite, you want to watch them and you want to be in it. That's yeah. hard. I think I probably would try and crowbar myself into everything. Um, Dasarisky. 
is a great team that is still kind of up there on the top of my list. They're just phenomenal. That's Craig Kukowski, Bob Dassey, Rich Tallarico, and Stephanie Weir. And they are just some of the best improvisers in the world, right? They're just yeah. phenomenal. So I love them. I'd like to see them, play with them. Although I'd probably ruin their show because they're the best. So maybe, I don't know, we'd do two shows. One of them would be very short with me in it, and then they could be amazing. Then it gets difficult. <laughs> then it gets difficult. Because <laughs> now I have to choose. Do you know what? If you asked me years ago, I would have said TJ and Dave, but I've seen so much TJ and Dave. Yeah. And I think, like, and they're still phenomenal. But I feel like I'd want to try and show off some people that were, like, maybe new or different or something. I've just come across a lady called Inbal Laurie. I saw her in Amsterdam. She's uh, Iranian and she lives in Berlin. And I'm just like, she's one of those people I'm like, ooh, I'm super interested in your work. And I've only seen her do a couple of shows, but I want more. So I feel like I just want to see her play with a bunch of other cool, kick-ass women. <laughs> yeah, can I just, I'll just put like 20 of my favorite improvisers in one show. Uh, it's your show. Susan Messing. <laughs> yeah, that's true. I would have Susan. I'd do a duo with Susan Messing. I've done that twice before and she's just so great and such a, a challenge in the best way. I can be quite controlling. It's the, the problem with being a, a teacher and a director, right? that you sometimes still in teaching directing brain when you play. So with her, you don't have time because she just does like in the few shows that I've played, she'll, she'll edit so hard and she'll, you'll be playing catch up the whole time, which is nice. I quite like that. It feels different. And probably something musical, probably with Stacey Smith, perhaps she's uh, adorable. They would be, they're the shows that are in my head right now. Okay. And if we're going to have a venue, what venue are you going to pick? Yeah. <laughs> Favourite cool. venue you've ever been to, or it could just be a one you've never even seen before, but you like the look of it. Ah, uh, there was a venue, I actually don't know what it's called, but it was in uh, Austin, Texas, and it's, um, I got to play a really cool show there with like 20 amazing improvisers, huge theatre, and it was an Armando where they had a state senator be the monologist. Oh, wow. And it was just so, it felt so rock and roll that I just really liked that venue. I don't know what it's called, but it's somewhere in austin <laughs> so so that could actually be the title of the show um, somewhere, in somewhere in austin a katie shoot right. tribute um yeah. okay brilliant all right well i think that is um a lovely way for us to end this chat katie shoot thank you so much for being on the hoopla impro podcast my pleasure leo thanks for asking me thanks for taking the time to listen to the hoopla impro podcast you can listen to other episodes at hooplaimpro.com where you'll also find an amazing resources section for further top tips and games. And do give us a shout out on Twitter and Instagram at Hoopla Impro. See you next time.